0: God, we are thankful uh, to be gathered here uh, among your people, to be encouraged, to sing just such powerful truth, and to rehearse the gospel. Uh, Lord, I pray as we look to your word, Lord, that you would be our teacher and guide. Lord, I pray for open hearts today, open minds, that you would, uh, Lord, help us to be receptive. We want to Uh, have a lean-in posture today uh, of what you uh, would have for us. And so, Lord, even as we receive your word, help us to be doers of it and to be obedient and faithful to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we all have things that we like uh, to avoid. Uh, You could say that part of the human existence is one of avoidance. Uh, For example, uh, most of us try to avoid public speaking at all costs, Uh, Some of us try to avoid uh, jury duty at uh, at all costs. Uh, Most of us try to avoid rush hour traffic on 465. Uh, We try to avoid uh, difficult and awkward uh, conversations from time to time. Uh, We try to avoid people who chew loudly on ice, right? Even this week, we're going to be trying to avoid the grocery store, right? The day before uh, Thanksgiving, right? All of us have things that we try uh, to avoid, you could even say that uh, it's impossible to avoid avoidance. It's kind of how we're wired. Even naturally, we avoid things that are dangerous. We avoid things that are uh, that, that are painful or uncomfortable or uh, even awkward. Now, while avoidance can be a healthy coping mechanism from time to time, did you know that avoidance is a mark of spiritual maturity? Yeah, it's true. In fact. The way that Paul closes out this letter to Titus, he stresses the need for us to apply a type of spiritual avoidance. Paul is going to call us to avoid specific things, not because they demand a lot of time like jury duty, not because of fear like public speaking, not because of annoyance like people who chew on ice loudly. But Paul will command us here to avoid certain things because they have a negative impact On our souls and in the church. Remember, Paul is closing out this letter to Titus, and like a constant beating of the drum, Paul has challenged this church at Crete to maintain sound doctrine and to pursue a life of good works. And we have seen over and over again, these two go hand in hand. In hand. And if you notice even the progression uh, of Paul's argument in chapter three, we have seen this emphasis on sound doctrine and living a life of good works. We even saw this last week in verses four through seven, just this beautiful display of God's grace found in the gospel. And then you get to verse eight and he's saying, look, I want you to insist on these things, insist on the gospel, make the gospel central and pervasive in the church. So that verse eight, you might live a life devoted to good works. When we get to verse 9, and the emphasis is not on something to insist, but it's actually something to avoid. But the goal is still the same. The goal is still in verse 14 that God's people might devote themselves to good works. In other words, if you truly have received God's grace in your life, you will be characterized by avoiding three things. So Paul's going to identify those three areas for us. Here's the first area. You've been changed by grace. You will avoid um, unprofitable arguments, unprofitable arguments. Like I said, the sovereignty of God has us here uh, on the week of Thanksgiving, as many of us will be gathered around the the dinner table with family members and friends. And from time to time, uh, holidays can be marked by a time of arguing, arguing and kind of debating, and a level of of tension uh, relationally. Well, if you've been marked by grace, you will avoid unprofitable arguments. In fact, this word, avoid, actually means to shun, means to to turn from or turn away. And here in verse 9, Paul specifically outlines four topics to avoid. Uh, Notice the first one here. He says to avoid foolish controversies, foolish controversies. Now, this is not a call to avoid all things controversial. Okay, that would be, number one, impossible. And number two, uh, think about the gospel message. The gospel message can be one of controversy. We are declaring that we all are sinners, we've all fallen short of God's glory, and yet there is a Savior that we need uh, in order to save us from our sins, if you've ever shared that with somebody, uh, you know that there's a level of controversy in that conversation. Even declaring that the Son of God came and he died and he rose again, that can lead you into a controversial discussion. So Paul here is not calling us to avoid all controversial discussions. He's calling us to avoid controversies that are foolish. Yeah, the gospel's not foolish, but Arguing and disputing and disagreeing on topics that are non gospel related is foolish. Now, what might this refer to? (laughs) What's Paul talking about? Some of these uh, things that he lists in verse 9, we're going to have to apply into our context. Okay, we're gonna have to do some contextualization, uh, if you will. Well, 1 Timothy 6, I think, shines some light on what Paul might be referring to here. He says, If anyone teaches, a different set of doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, this doesn't specify exactly what a foolish controversy is, but we see some indicators. We are to avoid controversies where the belief and the doctrine do not agree with the teachings of Jesus. And those types of topics often, according to Paul here, lead to envy. They lead to dissension, to slander, to kind of having this spirit of suspicion about other people. Paul says we need to avoid that, avoid it, because it distracts us uh, from the gospel. Secondly, though, another topic we are to avoid uh, are genealogies. <laughs> genealogies seem so random to us, uh, but clearly, Paul's not calling us to avoid reading those genealogy lists in Matthew or Luke which we'll be doing in a couple of weeks as we get ready for the Christmas season. But he's actually calling us to avoid irresponsibly reading into them in such a way as we conclude some sort of spiritual epiphany or spiritual insight that is clearly not intended. These false teachers that as we have seen over the last several months, they had this Jewish background and so they were reading into some of the, even the genealogies in the Old Testament, even kind of coming up with more genealogies, and, and they were basically concluding unfounded theories and myths from these lists of genealogies. All right, Paul says to avoid those. Thirdly, though, another area we're to avoid are dissensions. This word means heated disagreements, heated arguments. Again, Paul doesn't specify exactly what they were disagreeing about, but I think we can safely conclude that because of these false teachers and and these uh, individuals who had influence in the Cretan church, because they're coming from this Jewish background, they were trying to combine Judaism with Christianity. And and so they're debating and and contending for rigorous attention to rules and, and regulations found in the law that were not found in the teachings of Jesus, Paul says, to avoid that. And then fourthly, we are called to avoid quarrels about uh, the law. Again, these Jewish troublemakers of the Cretan church, they were adding to the doctrine of salvation, of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by adding aspects of the law. This was creating division. It was disrupting whole households, okay? So Paul's saying, look, avoid these arguments. Take on the same posture and attitude As you do toward jury duty or those awkward conversations, apply that uh, to these types of arguments. These arguments are not to be debated, but they are to be dismissed and denounced. They're not worthy of your time, but they require swift action to avoid. Now, why? Is it because God's people are not uh, intellectual enough to have some good arguments Is it because we're not grounded in our convictions enough? No, Paul says to avoid them because they're unprofitable. They're actually worthless. Nothing comes uh, from them. They are distractions away from the gospel. As I was reflecting on this, I began thinking through how this is much more challenging uh, than we might care to admit, (laughs) that some of us, just like a good (laughs) debate— Some of us like a good argument. We enjoy being intellectually stimulated. Some of us just like to win. And so we can take that mindset into any topic, into any area. Like nothing is off limits to kind of debating and arguing and having a good back and forth. And that can lead us into these descriptions of verse 9. Now, you might not struggle specifically with these four topics, but we can apply them in our own setting, in our own day uh, today. And I think the call here is if you're wired that way, you need to be especially on guard that you're not being pulled into these arguments described in verse 9 that lead to your mind being filled with unprofitable influences where you're wasting time. Now, another reason why this is challenging to follow is if you're just not grounded in sound doctrine, this can be a challenge for you. Because how do you know the difference if you're engaging and edifying in edifying and healthy theology or in this unprofitable nonsense that he's describing? How do you know the difference if you're not grounded in it? I wonder how many of us have been led down countless rabbit holes uh, on social media because we're not understanding what sound doctrine is and how some of those things actually are being described in verse 9, or how many clickbait articles we've researched and read and all these conspiracy theories and these debates and arguments, and we get caught up in all these things, and yet they're described in verse 9, all because you're not grounded in sound doctrine. Now, you might say, well, I'm not a theologian, Chris. I'm not I'm not a student. I'm not a reader. I'm not this or that. That's why I'm not deep uh, in theology. That's not why I'm not grounded. And look, that's not a good excuse. Like, that's not an acceptable reason to not anchor your life in deep and meaty truth. Like, it's not a time issue. And it's not an ability issue. Like, we make time for things that matter, that we think matter. And we learn abilities that we're convinced are worth learning. So if you're not grounded in theology, if you're not grounded in sound doctrine, it's not a time or ability issue, it's really a desire issue, where you just don't think it's necessary to be grounded in, in sound doctrine, or, or you don't see the, the danger of not being grounded in sound doctrine and how susceptible you might be. So I just want to press this a little bit, yeah, yes, dive into the Scriptures, Understand the, the, the deep waters of, of the doctrine of, of God and Christianity, absolutely. We, we actually even have a resource wall out there where we try to put resources there that might help aid you in grounding yourself in sound doctrine. And, and we all need to be on guard about how we're filling our minds and our hearts. But I think it begins with knowing sound doctrine and being grounded in it so we know what to avoid. And if you've been marked and changed by God's grace, you will grow in your knowledge of God and sound theology. Well, the second uh, area that we should avoid that Paul lists here now, verses 10 through 11, is to avoid divisive persons. Verses 10 through 11, Paul is really picking up where he left off in this warning at the end of chapter one as he's warning the church here of false teachers, people with influence, um, but what's interesting here—the Greek word for division or divisive—is actually where we get our word "heretic" from. And so these these bad, negative influencers in this church—they were heretics uh, who, through their false teaching, through their detestable character, through this intentional relation friction in the church, were causing division. Now, division in the church is always difficult. Like some of you have experienced painful uh, uh, moments of, of churches dividing or, or intense uh, relational conflict in uh, the church. And yet sometimes, and hopefully this isn't a controversial statement, but sometimes division is the right path for God's people. Sometimes when the gospel and true doctrine is being contradicted or undermined, sometimes in those moments, the right path for God's people is to separate or to divide from those who have gone adrift. Think about the Reformation in the 1500s. I mean, Martin Luther, uh, he he was shaking the tree a little bit. A lot of our beautiful creeds from the first couple centuries of Christianity came out of Moments of dividing and separating from unsound uh, doctrine. So I want to recognize that. But at the same time, a lot of times, maybe most of the time, it seems as though division in the church is caused not by a gospel issue or something of primary importance, but it's usually a preference. It's usually a personal conviction Or or something that's just theologically off base that someone's trying to make this hill to die on. We saw this in all kinds of churches, unfortunately, in 2020. We saw lots of division happening throughout the church of Jesus Christ, and some of it was political, some of it was related to COVID, right? We see division in the church uh, throughout the years based off worship wars, right, Uh, We we see it even with gray issues like alcohol use or education choices for our children or which organizations to boycott, which ones not to boycott. Like churches can find any type of reason or issue to divide over and to kind of cause separation and friction over. But I think there's a helpful distinction as we talk about this issue of, of division between somebody who hates division loves the unity of God's church, but because it's a gospel issue, needs to go there, right? There's that kind of person compared to another kind of person who just loves division, loves to stir the pot, right? Looking for any type of, of reason to kind of cause friction relationally. Brian Chapel, I think, provides this helpful distinction here. He says that there is a difference between needing to divide and loving to divide. A divisive person loves to fight. The differences are usually observable. A person who loves the peace and purity of the church may be forced into division, but it's not his character. He entered arguments regrettably and infrequently. When forced to argue, he remains fair, truthful, and loving in his responses. He grieves to have to disagree with a brother. Those who are divisive by nature lust for the fray, incite its onset, and delight in being able to conquer another person. For them, victory means everything. So, in an argument, they twist words, they call names, threaten, manipulate procedures, and attempt to extend the debate as long as possible and as long many fronts as possible. Divisive persons frequent the debates of the church. As a result, the same voices and personalities tend to appear over and over again, even though the issues change. Again, this is, I think, a helpful distinction here, and it does make clear what the situation was like here in Titus, the Cretan church. Paul is dealing with people who love to divide these issues in verse 9. Foolish controversies, genealogies, quarrels about the law. I think even some Uh, further characteristics of someone who is a divisive type person is that they spread gossip, they carry grudges, they create these hard clicks, they love to backstab, they deliberately undermine authority, they love to argue, they live with this us versus them mentality, they would rather be right than be loving. And they create these hills that are not of primary importance, these hills that they will die on. A divisive person is characterized by one or more of those types of traits. They actually become themes uh, in their life. And Paul describes in verse 11 as being warped, sinful, and self-condemned. Now, what's interesting here is that we're actually not first called to avoid them. Hopefully the title of that second point wasn't misleading, but we're actually first called to confront them. We're actually first called to warn them, to approach them, and the word here is actually to admonish them. We're called to help them repent, but it says here if they don't listen the first time, you go to them again, right? You don't give up on them. You approach them again, call them to repent, and if they don't listen that second time, then Paul says to avoid them. Paul says, to have nothing to do with them. Now, I don't know about you, but reading that, I'm just like, wow, that seems really harsh. I mean, that, that almost seems unloving and very unChristian. It almost feels like an overreaction. And yet, before we conclude that thought, that this is kind of a, an action that's void of grace, we need to be reminded of how important the peace purity, and unity of Jesus's bride, the church actually is. In fact, Paul will put this of such high importance in Ephesians 4, where he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How? With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. man, that's so helpful. He, he's describing here what a life that, that looks like, that's walking in a manner worthy of the calling. And one of the first places he goes is by being eager to maintain the unity that Jesus has created through his own blood. So you wanna live a life faithful to the Lord? Then you will take on this eagerness towards maintaining the unity that exists among God's people. Like this, this intentionality, having a, a purposed life where you're trying to maintain this unity. I, I find that very challenging because we don't, we don't always think that unity is something that we have to be eager towards maintaining. We think, well, if you just kind of do what we need to do and you know kind of do our thing and maybe avoid these comments here, then then it'll be okay. But no, this eagerness, man, this is taking it to a different level. This makes it a high, high priority. And it's reinforced in other passages. Like Romans 16, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flatter, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Oh, man, a strong warning again here to avoid those who cause division. These individuals who are creating obstacles to the gospel and are dividing the very unity that Jesus has created. That, that's the thrust here, that through Jesus's blood, he has established unity and oneness of God's people And the divisive person is trying to separate and break apart that which was created through the gospel. It's a big deal. It's a very big deal. And so just in light of of this importance, this stress, one of the application questions that we must ask ourselves is if there are three categories in this topic, we have to ask ourselves which category do you find yourself in today? The first category I would describe as the kind of person who is intentionally promoting and protecting the unity in the church, right? This, they have this type of, of eagerness, this type of intentionality. They are gracious. They are kind. Yes, they have convictions, All right, But they are kind and in, in their interactions with people, even those that disagree with them. They give the benefit of the doubt, They avoid gossip. They avoid uh, slander. They have face-to-face conversations rather than just on social media or whatnot. Category two, though, is someone who is this divisive person. Things that we've been stressing this morning, they love to stir the pot. Go back to those characteristics I just mentioned a minute ago. That's category two. But then category three, I would describe as someone who doesn't quite fit in category one and doesn't quite fit in category three. They're somewhere in the middle. Like they're not necessarily stirring the pot, but they're not eager and not intentionally promoting unity in the church. They're just kind of existing and just kind of there. And that I think can also be a dangerous place to be because we're all sinners and we don't always drift towards promoting unity. <laughs> Oftentimes we will drift towards creating relational friction. And so we need to understand how unity is absolutely essential to not divide that which has been created through the blood of Jesus. But the question that we have to ask that Paul addresses here in verse 10 is what happens when division occurs? What do God's people do when there's a divisive person in the midst? Well, this is where verse 10 really becomes helpful in understanding how to respond to sin. Which, I don't know about you, that can be very tricky. I mean, especially if you're trying to be gracious, like, do we just kind of ignore sin? Do we just kind of say, well, love, uh, you know, covers a multitude of sins, we'll just kind of carry on? Or do we pounce on people like the sin police? Like, what's the right balance here? Well, Paul gives us these prescribed steps. This is why this is so helpful. These are even steps outlined throughout the New Testament of how to confront another person's sin. And that's actually been described as church discipline. Now, I know when I say that phrase, some of us kind of have PTSD about that. Or like this, like, oh, you know, there's all kinds of reactions when I say church discipline. Uh, some of us are like, man, that is so old school and legalistic and unloving. I can't believe churches practice church discipline today, right? Others have the reaction of, well, it's in the Bible. It's in Matthew 18. We should be obedient to that. And yet maybe others of us are like, church what? What, what? Church discipline? I've never heard of that. There are steps to this. Like, I've never read that before. Okay, And so because maybe I don't know where you fall today, Um, I've preached on this in the past, but I just don't want to assume that we all know what church discipline is. So here's a helpful kind of definition by Mark Dever. Um, He talks about how church discipline is the church's act of confronting someone's sin, calling them to repent, which if the person doesn't repent, will culminate in excluding a professing Christian from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper because of serious, continual, and unrepentant sin. Again, you read that, and you're like, man, that feels unloving. (laughs) That just doesn't feel like the Jesus way. And I I don't love the title church. I prefer church restoration. Like, that's really the goal. Like, we're trying to restore this person and put them back on the path of repentance, the path that we're all on, by the way. But there are steps And yet, and Jesus gives four steps. This isn't just a Paul thing, uh, but the Lord Jesus gives four steps in Matthew uh, 18. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, okay? Between you and him alone. That's step one. And by the way, um, this is the step that is often ignored. Sometimes what we do is when we see sin or we've been sinned against, oh, we got to go tell the pastor or we got to go tell this person, we got to go do this thing. That's not the correct steps laid out for us. If You've been sinned against, you, see, you go directly to that person, right? That's step one. Step two, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother, praise God. But if he does not listen, that's the key word, listen. If he does not listen, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's step two. If he refused to listen to even them, here's step three, tell it to the church. Okay, the way that we've done that is we'll, we'll mark that individual for prayer at, at a membership meeting, okay? And we'll just say, hey, this is what's going on. If you interact with this person, we're calling them to repent. And if he refuses, here's step four, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning there's no fruit of repentance, In their life, we're unsure if they're a believer. It says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay, so these four steps are outlined here in Matthew 18, and we see some of these steps here in Titus 3. Step one, warn them. Step two, if they don't repent, warn them again. Step three, if they still don't, then you bring in the church membership to be able to address that. I think the key key here is that the church advances to the next step when the person who's not repenting is no longer listening. Like they've removed themselves from the path of repentance. Now, at the same time, we are not called to be spiritual garbage inspectors or kind of the morality spy, right? However, when we have a brother or sister who is sinning, we lovingly approach them and we're calling them to repent. If they don't listen, you do it again. If not, you bring in the church. But if at any point there's evidence of genuine repentance, then the process of discipline stops and the, the ministry of restoration begins, okay? Now, this also begs the question, is divisiveness in a category of sin all by itself? Like, do we only do church discipline for someone who's creating division? What about the other sins? Well, it's a really good question. And we don't have a list of sins in the scriptures that qualify for church discipline, but the pattern that we see set forth in the New Testament is when someone is stuck in sin that's appropriate for church discipline is when it's public, when it's serious, when it's habitual, and when it's lacking repentance. Okay, public, habitual, serious, lacking repentance. Okay, so Paul is not talking about someone who lapses into sin, but is trying to repent, or someone who's struggling and, and wrestling and inviting others to help them repent. That's not who Paul's talking about here. In those examples, in those situations, where don't we all fall in that? Uh, we are to apply Galatians six one and two, where we're called here. If anyone's caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Or verse two is help carry each other's burdens. Okay, so, but the person Paul's talking about here is someone whose identity is now marked or described by one or more of sinful behaviors. That because it's public and serious and habitual and lacking repentance, that that person is now known as a divisive person, or as a drunkard, or as an adulterer. Like that's their now identity. And Paul's not talking about someone who's repenting of sin, but someone who has two competing identities, if you will. Someone who's claiming to be a brother or sister in Christ, but their behavior is actually identifying and describing them as an unbeliever. Paul says to the church, to genuine Christians, don't associate with someone like that. Now why? Well, it's because it's dangerous to spend time with a wolf in sheep's clothing. We've seen that throughout Titus. But number two, part of the process of church discipline is to remove the benefits of being part of the church family in hope that that person wakes up, comes to their senses like the prodigal son in Luke 15 and repents and comes back, all right? This is the most loving thing that the church can do. Like it it sounds harsh, it sounds unloving. But part of the reason for that is because Maybe the culture's influence where what it means to love somebody is to tolerate everything. Like, that's what we hear that if you love me, you will agree with me. Like, we, we don't understand the nuance of I can love you and yet still disagree with you. Or I can love you and still call you to repent. And I think we need to be reminded, church, that this is a loving thing to do for. All of us who fall into sin from time to time. I think practicing this and doing what the word says. So many churches rip out Matthew 18 from their Bibles and look, I would love to do that. This is hard to practice. When we did step four in 2020, man, that was hard. That was so painful. But we have to be obedient to God's word. We don't get to pick and choose which passages to follow, which passages to obey but we submit ourselves to God's word. And there are several purposes that come from actually practicing this idea of church discipline, church restoration. Number one, one of the purposes is that we're trying to restore a brother or sister in Christ back into the family of God, put them back on the path of repentance. That's one of the purposes of this. This isn't a punitive punishment that we're trying to do or whatever with this person. Another purpose though um, is that we are protecting the church when sin that's not being repented of is just kind of out there and it's public habitual, like that's going to create damage. It's going to negatively impact the church. We want to protect the church. Thirdly, this is a warning for the rest of God's people. Like when we practice this, when we share this, the knee jerk is like, well, I got to search my own heart. I got to look at the sin that's in my life and confess and repent. So it's kind of this warning to take sin seriously. And then the fourth purpose is this gives glory to God that a church represents God and his character and his name, the holiness of God to a watching world. And so we practice this to make sure that we're faithfully displaying who God actually is. I heard someone say once that overlooking sin is not gracious, but dangerous. That confronting sin is not optional, but essential. Dealing with sin is not judgmental, but remedial. That correcting sin is not carnal, but spiritual. And again, when sin occurs, whether in someone else's life or in our own heart, the response should be a deep grief, a mourning over the sin. The response is not judgmentalism or looking down upon someone else. It's let me inspect the log that's in my own eye. The 1800s revivalist Charles Finney said this. He said, if you you see your neighbor sin and you pass by and neglect to reprove him, it is as cruel as if you should see his house on fire and pass by and not warn him. And again, I think one of the dangers of what we're seeing in the culture and how the, how the culture might be impacting the church is as the culture just continues going on this downward spiral of immorality, one of the impacts that it can have on God's people is the normalization of sin, where we see sin everywhere. We see sin in the entertainment world, we see it on social media, and we see it not only being normalized, but we actually see it being celebrated. That is, has an impact on us as we live in the world but not of the world and one of the impacts if we're not careful is that we can look at that and we can be impacted by how sin can lose its offensiveness toward God like we can actually become numb to sin because it's so normalized and the danger of that is that we become susceptible to now accepting it that's how that usually works And so the call here is to take sin seriously by viewing sin through the lens of God's word and not through the world, that we take it seriously so we can avoid being numb to it, so we can address it in our own lives and look so that we can be reminded of what it cost Jesus in order to deal with our sin. Like as we get to the end of Titus and man, last week's passage was so rich and beautiful and robust, man, let's apply that to this topic of sin and how to address it, that we have a sinner who has dealt in full with our sin problem. Like he went to the cross in order to pay our penalty so that we can be forgiven. And hallelujah, that he didn't stay dead, but he rose to life and he offers eternal life and grace for all who believe. Like that is good news because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory, and yet we have a great Savior who offers the solution of putting our faith in him and not trusting in our good works. And the beautiful thing about that is that now actually creates motivation for how we deal with our own sin, of not going back to the same sin that Jesus died to save us from. Well, this takes us to the third and last, and I'll close with this. The last area that we need to avoid if we've been changed by grace, avoid an unfruitful life. Verses 12 through 15 involve some personal requ- requests that Paul makes to Titus. He kind of updates him on his travel plans, but let me point out verse 14 here. He, he talks about this idea of, he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. It's so helpful to avoid an unfruitful life. What a way to close out this book, by the way, where we have seen such a press for good works. We've seen this marriage between sound doctrine and good deeds. And now Paul here is saying, busy your life with so much good works that you don't have time uh, to be involved in unprofitable arguments. You don't have time uh, to be involved in, in, with, with divisive people. You don't have time to be involved in habitual sin. And so we cannot separate doctrine from deeds, belief, and behavior, our creeds, from our conduct. So if you want to live a life that's bearing fruit, where you're not wasting it, my charge to you as we close this letter, my encouragement to you is to fill your mind with thoughts about God, massive, huge thoughts about God that are drenched in Scripture. To consume robust and sound doctrine, these truths about a God who is massive and eternal and infinite, who has no comparison on the earth. Because when you fill your life with those kinds of thoughts, the response will be a natural outpouring of good deeds, Like being consumed with the goodness of God will lead towards living a life of good works. Where good works is not just something to cross off the to-do list, but you're thinking about God and his greatness that will lead you towards being someone who's doing good deeds. And I think that's the main idea, the main thrust of Titus. Let's be that kind of people as God continues to lead and guide and shape us. Let's pray together. God, we do give you praise for this wonderful letter. We thank you for the last few months and these lessons and themes, Lord, that have emerged. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel that we have seen in just about every verse. Thank you for the way that your word just points us to the grace that's found in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that grace not only saves us, but it shapes us that it informs how we live as it trains us to renounce ungodliness and to pursue good works. God, I pray as we live in this world, but not of the world, that you'd help us to be a people who are learning to devote ourselves to good deeds, not to earn salvation, but because we have been saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.